911 emergency, Brown 15 Many people today struggle with the question, how can a good God allow so much evil in this world? This question became a painful reality on October 1st, 2017, when 60 people were senselessly murdered and another 413 were wounded in a mass shooting in Las Vegas. Countless others suffer the impact of evil daily through abuse, crime, and exploitation. Where is God in all of this, and how can a loving God allow these things to happen? While we will pursue answers to these questions, and the answers don't come easy, our hearts can have peace in Jesus, God's Son. God hasn't removed Himself from evil and suffering, but He subjected Himself to it. The answer we're searching for isn't found in a philosophy, but in a person. As God's Son, Jesus entered the evil of humanity and suffered so that from the pain He endured and through His resurrection, His victory could emerge and transform your pain into victory through His love. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. We are in a book called Habakkuk, which is uh, just how you like your bacon extra crispy. It's in the extra crispy part of your Bibles. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have a Bible, turn there with me. If you're using our app, Tony Perez has designed it so it turns there automatically for you so you don't have to scroll. Get your hand up high if you need a Bible. Habakkuk, if you don't know where it's at, ask a neighbor. Um, or go to Matthew and just start working to the left and uh, you'll run into this, this little book. Stand with me. When you get to Habakkuk 1.1, say amen. amen. All right, we're dealing with a challenging question today. Um, if God is a God of love, then why is there evil in the world? In, in 40 minutes, we're going to resolve this question that's, that's perplexed people for 6,000 years plus. Um, no, we're going, to take, we're going to take a stab at it. But here we go, chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says this, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Father, we sometimes feel the same way that this prophet did. And God, this, this perplexing conundrum that sometimes overwhelms us, God, that sometimes gets a hold of us. God, it sinks its teeth into us. And it promotes struggle and doubt and fear. God, as our lives sometimes begin to orbit around the unanswered whys in our lives. Father, we pray today, God, we need your mercy. This is not just a philosophical issue. God, it's a personal one. And there's no doubt that there are those of us in this room and watching online who are really wrestling. God, who are really wrestling and maybe wounded and be present today, God, to meet the needs that exist among your people in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat today.
Where do you think evil uh, comes from? The devil. <laughs> Why do you think there is evil? The world. People in the world. I think evil is learned, a learned behavior. Those people that does bad things in the world, that's what's make everything evil. Evil is just another word to call someone, but the person that's a human being is the one that's the truly is responsible for, you know what I mean? For the evilness in this world. I don't believe in all that, uh, oh, this person, I'm a Christian, none of that. I believe that, but what I don't believe is you can't blame that on things that's not on this earth. You gotta take consequences, you gotta take responsibility for your own actions, just like that. Um, I think there's evil in the world because there's, uh, we always have to have a balance of evil and good. There is, if the world was all 100% good, um, I feel like there would be, it, would, it wouldn't be a society that, that brings the best out of people to try to help each other, to try to make things better. So that's why I think there's evil. Pretty obvious that evil is a confusing issue, isn't it? You know, and it is interesting when you listen to um, those responses and um, maybe they weren't all together like really well articulated. There are phil philosophies that, that are popular today that underlie those responses. I think that, I think the question why, the word why, is one of the most powerful words in the English language. Um, I think that that word and the curiosity that comes from that word has led to innovations like your iPhone. I think that uh, that question and the desire to pursue answers to that questions have solved really complicated problems in society like, like world wars. I think from a scientific point of view that the word why for sure has been a generator. It's been an engine that has compelled scientists to pursue answers to some of the most difficult questions in the cosmos and led us to create things like quantum mechanics. It's led to breakthrough discoveries like penicillin, but it has also compelled us to seek answers to life's most perplexing problems, like if God is good and God is love, then why is there evil in the world? Uh, and I just want to say on the onset, this is not just an intellectual, philosophical question. It is. There's no doubt about it. We wrestle with this from a philosophical point of view. But it's, it's also personal and real. All of us, to some degree, and I know our stories are different, all of us have wrestled, wrestled with these issues. All of us have been confronted with evil and with wickedness. As a pastor, I deal with this all the time. Just this year, I've had people ask me questions about why God has allowed certain things to happen in their lives. Questions like, why did my son die of an overdose? Or why was my daughter shot and killed? Or why did my husband divorce me and leave me with the children? Or why was I sexually abused when I was a child? Or why is my body, why has God allowed my body to be riddled with cancer? You know, these are, these are some of the, the issues and realities that we deal with as people. And then on an even larger scale, I'm not saying, I'm just saying on a larger scale, we look at something like the Holocaust and the, the, the murder of six million Jews just, in, just at the hands of the Third Reich, not even including what happened under Stalin in Russia. And we think, if God is a God of love, how can he allow something like that to happen? And you know, even for us in, in Las Vegas, I know that I know that, that video is jarring, um, it's a little triggering, you know, it, it, it provokes us to, to think back and experience, you know, a very challenging uh, moment in the history of our city. And, uh, and I will just say, as somebody who's present during a lot of crisis. Um, I love the fact that our God is able to be in the crisis and can turn evil into good. That's what, that's what our God is able to do. But we reflect on something like that, and, and certainly there are people in our city and around the world who think, man, if God is a God of love, how could he allow a madman, 
How could, that, how could that person go unrestrained and unchecked? There are so many opportunities for God to have silenced that and stopped it, and yet 60 people senselessly murdered, 413 injured. You know, people don't pose this perplexing question to Charles Darwin. They don't bring this question to naturalism. They lay this question at the feet of God. They pose it to the God of the Bible. You know, it's interesting to me that even the atheist becomes a theist when the hat of suffering needs a place to hang. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like someone who is just absolutely, ardently, totally committed to atheism. There is no God. And then all of a sudden, when, when suffering and calamity hit, all of a sudden, they become a theist. Like, all of a sudden, they want a place to lay the blame. And I do think um, at a surface level of all of the world religions, Christianity creates the greatest tension concerning the problem of evil in a sense, at the surface level. And that is partly because as Christians, as Bible-believing, Jesus-following people, we boldly say, we can full-throatedly say that our God is absolutely sovereign, that he is absolutely loving, and that he is good all the time. That's what we say. And, and that's, that, is what creates, that is what creates attention. The truth is this, today in this room, there may be some of you maybe watching online, and you know, this is the very issue. This is the linchpin for denying God in your life. Like this unanswered question has become so perplexing for you, you've discarded, you've discounted, the Judeo-Christian God, because you just can't resolve what the Bible teaches about God being sovereign, loving, and good, and the existence of evil in the world. Maybe some of you, on the other hand, you are your Christ followers. You do believe in God, and you do love God, but you know um, the, the, the unresolved issue of the problem of evil has created this like residual doubt in your life. Like there's just this, this one thing, maybe more than one thing, but this is for sure one thing. It's just like, it just, it's there. It seems to be there all the time. And you come back around to the question why, and it's unresolved, it's undealt with. And so, so you know, there's just this seed of doubt within you. Maybe for some of you, um, because you can't fully resolve it the way that you want to, it's giving you some trepidation in really trusting God with your life. You know, there's this fear. You look at the world, you see what God permits and allows, and you think, man, do I really want to entrust my life? Because who knows what God might allow? And then some of you in this room, the truth is some of you, um, you're living in a place of woundedness. You're living in a real place of woundedness. There are circumstances and events that have happened in your life that have hurt. They've hurt you deeply. They've hurt you deeply. And, and so you've had this unresolved question, this unresolved question that has just lingered, lingered before the throne of God, and your life is, has begun to orbit around this, this question of why. God, why? Why did you allow this? The tribulation and the trial in your life has turned into a trauma. It's turned into a trauma because it's really not been sorted out, it's not been, it's not been resolved, and, and maybe the truth is this, you're, you're, you're looking for an answer that God has chosen not to give to you. I'm aware today that all of these things may exist. I want to I wanna, uh, propose to you, though, this statement. Christianity, I believe, provides the strongest answers, meaning, solutions, and hope in the face of the reality of evil in this world. I say all of that this morning to say this, Christianity provides the strongest answers, meaning, solutions, and hope in the face of the reality of evil in this world. Now, I don't have to stand here and define evil to you, and you guys know how much I love definitions. And so I had one loaded up. I mean, it was a whole paragraph on defining evil, and I thought, man, you know what? These people don't need it defined. Like, evil's in our face all the time. We don't need a description, we don't need a definition, but let me, let me just say this because I think it will help. When we talk about evil, there are three different forms of evil that we experience in this world. There's natural evil. This is, um, evil is an, amper it's an impersonal force 
that's at work. It doesn't discriminate. It is a function of living in a fallen world. This is the existence of viruses and cancer. Um, this is the existence of what we might call a natural disaster, earthquakes and floods and tsunamis. The reality is this, there is just there is natural evil in this world because we live in a fallen world. There's also moral evil. Moral evil, I think, is a little easier for us to explain. It's, it's the outworking of the evil nature that lies within humanity. I, I think it's easy for us sometimes to say, well, you know, there's a whole bunch of people I'd put in that category, right? I mean, you've got a little compartment, a box set up in your life, and you've got particular people starting from Hitler all the way to your boss. No, you don't do that to your boss, but <laughs> you know, you've got people that you're just like, man, they're evil people. They're just evil people. And there's, there's the experience of evil from a moral point of view in this world because it's the outworking of evil that exists within their heart. Now, we're going to get to this in just a minute, but you guys know there's evil at work within all of our hearts. There's evil that's at work within all of our hearts. There's really one category when it comes to the wickedness of the human heart, and that category has over it a banner that says all of us. There is also supernatural evil. So we've got natural evil, moral evil, and the supernatural evil. The Bible teaches that there are principalities and powers, rulers of darkness that are at work in the world today. The Bible teaches that there was a, uh, an angelic being that was created perfect in all of his ways until, his name is Lucifer, until corruption was found within him. God did not create evil, he created Lucifer good, but it was the privation of good, the absence of good, the corruption of Lucifer that ultimately was a piece of introducing wickedness and evil into this world. And of course, you know the story. He uh, assaulted the throne of God, thinking that he could take the place of God, and he drew a third of the angels with him. And those angels, along with Lucifer, fell, and they're in operation. They're in operation today. You know, um, there is a physical veil that we see. Behind the physical veil is a spiritual world, and these demonic powers are, are at work. I'm grateful the Bible does not hide our struggle with evil. Somebody said this, they said, nowhere is the problem of evil and suffering taken more seriously than in the Bible. And that is absolutely true. Like out of the gate, you open up the book of Genesis and what do you, what do you discover? You discover within the first three chapters, like God is explaining how it is that evil came to be in the world, that Lucifer was fallen, that he took the form of a serpent in the garden and it was there that he sought to deceive and entice Adam and Eve to not love God. Make no mistake about it, that was uh, what was happening in the garden. Because you remember God said, hey, listen, all of the trees and the fruit thereof is available for you to eat except, like you got all the blessings you can imagine in this perfect world that I've made, and you can enjoy everything that's in the world except you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely and so you know what happened, Adam and Eve, Eve was deceived, Adam transgressed, they ate of the tree, they were kicked out of the garden, and immediately, man, immediately you're reading a story about their two boys, Cain and Abel, and the wickedness, the wickedness that was present, and how sin was lying at the door waiting to consume Cain, and you know what he did. In the first family, there was murder, there was hatred, and so we're immediately introduced right away in the book of Genesis. And then throughout the scripture, we see people wrestling with the issue of evil. You, you go a little further into the Old Testament, you're confronted with a guy named Job. By the way, the book of Job is believed to be the oldest uh, written book and historical book outside of obviously the creation story in the Bible, but we're presented with this guy, you know, this upstanding man, and we know he's upstanding because we have a picture of what's going down in heaven as God is extolling the virtue of his servant, Job, 
and there's an accuser that's present as, as some of the, the leaders uh, of, of the heavenly realm are present before God. That Satan is present himself, and Satan does uh, to Job what Satan does all the time. He's the accuser of the brethren. By the way, do not be an accuser of the brethren, because when you do, like you are hanging out with someone you don't want to hang out with. And so you know what he said? He's like, God, you know what? This, 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 this boy, he only serves you and follows you because you've blessed him so much. You take away the blessings, man, he, he, he's done. And so you remember the story um, of what happens to Job. All of his possessions are taken away, destroyed, natural evil. His family, everyone except God, God bless her, his wife, right? All of his family, his sons and daughters gathered together. They're destroyed, they're killed in a moment, in an instant. And you know, he maintains his integrity, the Bible says, and the devil there as the accusers are like, well, you know what, um, skin for skin, all that a man has he'll give for his life. You take away his physical health, and so of course you remember the story. Not only did he, did he lose his possessions, not only did he lose his children, but not only does he have a wife that's saying, curse God and die, and he says to her, man, you speak as someone who doesn't know God. But then he's physically aff afflicted. The Bible says his body is caked with sores. And the implication is the sores are infested with worms. And he's, he's taking a potsherd and he's... I don't know if you had breakfast yet, but there you go, right, be <laughs> right before your brunch. He's, he's scraping. He's scraping those sores off of him, those boils. And... And then, you know, he's just so blessed to have three friends come along. You know, friends, friends, friends who are like, you know, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why you're suffering. And, and you know the story, like the book of Job deals with this idea that if you're, if you're good, you're blessed. And if you're bad, you're cursed. And the problem is Job had not done anything to experience the cursing of God. And so for 38 chapters, you know, it's painful, it's agonizing. 38 chapters, there's this back and forth between three friends and then this young um, upstart individual who thinks he has all of the wisdom and knowledge, you know, tells Job why it is that he's suffering. And then finally, you get to chapter 40. And what God does is he chooses not to answer Job's question of why. There's no answer to that question. The whole time, Job's like, why, God? Why have you allowed this? I'm upstanding. I've done nothing wrong. God never answers the question. In fact, he asks Job 64 questions, and he shows Job that the true answer isn't some philosophical answer, but that he, God, is the answer that Job has been longing for. I think about Asaph, who was a worship leader, wrote many psalms, singer, songwriter for God, in Psalm 73, he pours out his heart. He's like, God, I don't understand. I don't understand. It seems like the wicked prevail. God, if you are a good God, if you're a loving God, if you're for your people, how can you allow Israel to be in a place where wickedness seems to prevail? You get someone like John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus called him the greatest of all the prophets. He lived his life sacrificially for Christ. And for all of that, he gets thrown into prison. And in prison, he starts to wonder himself. Doubt starts to creep in. And he gets word back to Jesus, are you really the Messiah or is there someone else that we ought to be looking for? And you know, the greatest of all of the prophets, living self-sacrificially, water baptized Jesus. The man who was the herald, the preceder, ultimately his life ends up in him being beheaded you remember the story, his head was cut off and put on a platter, right? I know some of you are like, man, I got a flat tire today, my battery is dead, and God, if you're a God of love, why don't, why are you allowing these things to happen to me? And I just say, hey, has your head been chopped off and put on a platter? <laughs> and then you've got Habakkuk, and then you've got Habakkuk, and Habakkuk, of course, is a contemporary of Isaiah, um, he knows that Babylon is going to come and defeat the southern kingdom, that, that the southern kingdom is going to be exiled to Babylon. And this is the thing, you, and you read it here with me. He's like, God, how long? We're crying. We're crying for help, and you're not hearing. God, there's violence everywhere. 
and you're not saving. Why do I have to see these things with my eyes? And it seems almost as if your goodness, your law is paralyzed. God, the violence, the oppression, the wickedness, your inactivity not only seems like indifference, your inactivity not only seems like indifference, but because you're not doing anything about it, it appears to me that you're actually endorsing those who are evil. That's the heart of a prophet. That's the struggle of a prophet. Hey, let, let me just remind you today, it is okay to wrestle with these things before God. The prophet did it, the worship leader did it, Job did it. It's not wrong. It's not wrong to wrestle honestly. The, the, the problem comes when our lives begin to be oriented around, held back because of when we start to doubt God and drift from Him. When the devil gets in and he leverages our pain in such a way that instead of leaning into God, we begin to lean away from him. You know, I think that our wrestling with evil doesn't disprove God, it actually affirms his existence. Our wrestling with evil doesn't disprove God, it actually affirms his existence. There's a, an old dude, his name, his name uh, was Ep Epicurus. He had the hair that I always wanted to have, I'll just tell you right now. <laughs> but Epicurus, you know, this is where Epicurean uh, philosophy comes from. He uh, was a Greek philosopher and he created an argument called the trilemma. Um, this argument was co-opted by David Hume, a philosopher in the last uh, 150 years and used against God, used as a reason to deny the Judeo-Christian God. And the argument, you've heard something like it before, maybe you've thought of it yourself. Uh, it goes like this, if God is unable to prevent evil, then he's not all-powerful. If God is not willing to prevent evil, then he's not all-good. If God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then why does evil exist? He says, let me read it again. If God is unable to prevent evil, then he's not all powerful. If God is not willing to prevent evil, then he's not all good. If God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then why does evil exist? Um, I think that there are some qualities and characteristics of God that he left out of the equation. Not only is God altogether good. Not only is God altogether powerful, but you need to remember that God is altogether wise. God is altogether wise. What do I mean by that? Well, when you think about the existence of good and evil, you need to remember that our wise God has a plan. He has a plan. There's a purpose in everything. You know, we're reminded that we see through a glass, Paul says this, we see through a glass in that dimly. Paul, when he gets to the end of Romans chapter 11, 9, 10, and 11, he's talking about Israel and God's work in Israel and how Gentiles are grafted in. And, you know, when he gets to the end of it, he's like, man, you know what? This is just so far above my capacity to understand who can trace out the ways of God. Who can trace out the ways of God? You know, in other words, listen, we see a, a little sliver. We see a tiny sliver of what it is that God is doing and sometimes what we do is we take the knowledge that we have and we take the way that we would do things. Normally, that's the way it works, right? We take the way that we would do things and we try to, we try to put God in this position where we say, well, we, we don't, maybe we don't term it like this, but it is what we think. Well, if I was God, I wouldn't do it like that. Like the difficulty that we have is that God isn't operating according to the way that we would do things. And the truth is this, we don't see the whole plan, brothers and sisters. We don't see the whole plan. And not only that, God is also all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows every single detail. You know, sometimes as a leader, I'm in a situation where I'm making decisions and, and there are plenty of people who are like, well, that, that didn't make sense to me or I wouldn't do it like that. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know what? You don't have all the information. You just don't, you know, ever happen with your kids? You're like making a decision and they're like, yeah, you know what, mom, dad, that was a really dumb decision. And it's like, no, no it's not like that. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like, you just don't know. You just don't know. You're just, you, you know, you're a teenager, you're growing, and you'll be able to one day experience life in all of its realities. But the fact is this, you just don't have all the information. Hey, listen, God has all the information. 
And not only that, but God operates from the eternal, right? And so God's got a time frame. We have our time frame. God has his time frame. And God knows what he's doing. God knows when he permits and he allows pain in our life what the future benefit is going to be. You know, we, for instance, when we would take our kids to get vaccines, for instance, um, um, Hannah, we take her uh, to get a polio vaccine and we were selective about our vaccines, but you know, we're on the way and she's got a little lollipop in her mouth and you know, it's all good. She's with mom and dad. She's got a lollipop. She just watched VeggieTales, okay? If you don't know what VeggieTales is, you can YouTube that later on. And so she's cruising, right? She goes into the doctor's office. She's safe and secure because mom and dad are with her and leading her and guiding her. And, and so, you know, the appointment comes. She's taken back in her room. She's still okay because, you know, she's with us. Then all of a sudden, this fool pulls out a needle. <laughs> and something doesn't make sense, right? There's a disconnect here. Because, because I'm with mom and dad, and I trust mom and dad, but homeboy here has pulled out a needle, and then, you know, and then the arm gets swabbed, and the, and the tissue gets massaged, and then the needle goes in. And if you're a parent, you know what happens here, right? Your kid looks at you like, how could you let this happen to me? You totally manipulated me with a lollipop and veggie tails, and I knew I should have never trusted you. And, and yet little do they know, little do they know that, that that vaccine that they were given, even though it was pain in the moment, even though it caused some consternation, disconnect, some dissonance between what they know us to be as mom and dad and the pain experience in the moment, they, they don't know that that vaccine is protecting them over the course of time. I'm just saying to you today, you can't boil it down to a trilemma. There are other qualities and characteristics that of God that are at work in your life. There's a, 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 you probably heard this story, there's a farmer, he lost his horse, it ran away, and so his, his na neighbor yelled from the farm next door, he's like, hey, bad luck, your horse ran away. And the farmer's like, well, maybe so, maybe not, who knows. A few days later, the horse comes back with 20 other wild horses. And so the neighbor says, hey, not bad luck, it's good luck, you got 20 more horses. And the farmer's like, maybe so, maybe not. A Couple days later, his young son goes in to break one of the horses, to tame one of the horses, and while he's doing so, the young horse kicks him and breaks his leg. And so the neighbor yells from the farm next door, he says, hey, bad luck that those horses came and broke your son's leg. And the farmer says, maybe so, maybe not. A few days later, some thugs roll in and they're looking for young, able-bodied boys to be a part of their gang. And so they're pulling all these boys, they come across this boy with a broken leg and they pass over him because his leg is broken. And the neighbor comes by and says, hey, good luck, your son's leg was broken. And the farmer says, maybe so, maybe not, we will see. I, I, all I'm saying to you, by using that as an illustration is sometimes we won't know till we get to heaven. Sometimes we won't know till we get to heaven. I mean, you know, there are times God doesn't answer and the jury's out and we've got to trust him enough to place it in his hands. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, if you're going through difficulty right now, you might think, man, that's not very comforting, pastor. That doesn't comfort me. And I say, listen, when you entrust yourself, when you entrust yourself to an all-wise, all-eternal, all-knowing, all-good, all-loving God, your heart, your heart will be comforted. I think the question itself affirms God. And I want to tell you how I get there philosophically. When you and I even pose the question about evil, what we're doing is we are identifying evil. We're identifying evil as evil, and to do that, it requires a moral law. You have to have a standard. The postmodern mind says all things are subjective. There's nothing that really is true. As long as it feels good to you, go ahead and do it. 
But the reality is the moment someone starts talking about evil, they've established a moral law. Undeniably, years ago when, we were, when I was at college, um, there were a group of witches and warlocks that some of us Christians were ministering to. They invited us to their weekly meeting, which was really interesting. And, and so we would spend time talking to them, and they would make this argument, you know, hey, everything's subjective. There is no moral standard. You can't say that one thing's right and another thing's wrong. If something feels good to someone, let them do it. And we would always come back with, well, what about rape and exploitation? And they'd be like, no, 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 no. Those things are wrong. It's like, no, wait a minute. You just set up a framework that keeps anyone from saying that there is objective truth. So you can't even say that those things are wrong based on the framework that you have. No, the truth is this. We all have an innate sense. We all have an innate sense of right and wrong. It's called a conscience. It's been placed there by God. It's a moral law, and if there is a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. There's someone who's designed it. There's someone who's created it. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. This was the very thing that led C.S. Lewis, an agnostic, to, to believe in God. Not only that, but think about this. Evil is done to actual people, and the struggle to understand why evil is done to people exists because people, we believe, have value and worth. If naturalism is the reason why we're all here, there is no value and worth. And so we shouldn't struggle with evil because evil, if it does exist, is just happening to nothing less than, than cells, material things, without a spirit, without a soul. But we know that that's not the case. We struggle with evil because we esteem people to have value and worth. And I would say value and worth come from the moral lawgiver because he's created us in his image. We have value and worth because we've been made in the image of God. And we've been made in the image of God because of love. And so let me just, let me, let me tie that off one more time. Right? When we ask about evil in this world, we identify evil, it requires, requires a moral law. Moral law requires a moral law giver. Evil is done to actual people, and the struggle to understand this exists because we intrinsically know people have value and worth. People have value and worth because the moral law giver has made people in his image, and he has made people in his image because of love. This was the purpose of the covenant. And to love, here we go, to love means you have to have choice. To love means you have to have choice. This is why in the garden there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't love without having the opportunity to exercise your moral agency to demonstrate your choice for good or your choice for evil. And in fact, our response to this opportunity to choose shapes our hearts either to love God or to not love God. Because God could have, there were four options. God could have not made the world. God could have made an amoral world. God could have made a world where, where human beings were predetermined, where they didn't have choice, or he could build a world where love was possible. But for love to be possible, he has had to allow the existence of evil and wickedness for a time. Are you with me today? Asaph, listen, Asaph, it all, be, it all got cleared up. I'm not saying that every question was answered, but for Asaph in this struggle when he's like, God, I don't get it. As you read all of Psalm 73, this is what the Bible says. It says, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me, check this out, until I went to the sanctuary of God. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, he's like, man, I was left in this place where all I had was my own mind and experience to try to sort this out. And you know, it was perplexing and painful until I went into the house of God until I was saturated in the presence of God, until I experienced God. That's what he says. 
And so, listen, Jesus confronted evil so you could experience God in his love. Like you're not left in a place where it's just your experience with, wick, with wickedness and evil in a natural sense, in a supernatural sense, and in a moral sense. Not just stuff done to you, but what's happening on the inside. Because Jesus Christ confronted evil once and for all. You know, sometimes people say to me, hey, why do bad things happen to good people? And, you know, if I'm in a feisty mood, If I'm in a feisty mood, I'll say, well, technically, te- technically, there's only one good person. Technically, there's only one good person. If we compare ourselves to each other, for sure, there's gradients, right? But really, technically, there's only one good person. There was only one time when a bad thing happened to a good person. It was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And, and it's in the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus that you have to remember God is not removed. God is not removed. Sometimes you know when you're in the middle of it, it's like, God, you are transcendent and you're so otherworldly. You're not even connected to this. You have no idea what I'm going through. And God says, yes, I do. Because the captain of our salvation was perfected through suffering. Because he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. Because he was, Jesus, in all points tempted as we are tempted, yet he without sin, so that we could have a high priest who could sympathize with our weaknesses. So that when you come to him in prayer, in your brokenness and pain, as your tears are flowing and you're asking him to help you, he's like, I know how to help. I know how to help. I've walked that road. I've walked that road, I've been there, I've experienced it. That is what he's done for us. If you just look at the book of Isaiah chapter 53, think about everything he endured for you and me. He was undesired, he was despised, he was was rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Unesteemed, he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was stricken, smitten by God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised uh, for our peace. He was striped so that we could be healed. Our iniquity, iniquity was placed on him. He was oppressed, he was slaughtered, he was cut off, he was stricken, he died innocently. He was bruised, he was grieved, he was sacrificed, and he interceded for the transgressors. That's, that, that is how he confronted evil. That is how he dealt with the issue of wickedness in this world. This is how we know that our God, who is a God of love, has at the same time addressed the issue of evil for you and for me. He's addressed natural evil. We know that that the creation that is broken and fallen will be renewed one day because Jesus Christ died on the cross. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that creation was subjected to futility because of hope. We know that his death on the cross dealt with moral evil, moral evil, the evil within us. Listen, we are broken because of sin. And, and, and truly, like, one of the key pieces to this whole study is the reality that we are broken. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to be willing to admit. But we are sexually broken we are selfishly broken, we have idols naturally in our lives, we work out our brokenness by pride, hatred, and violence. I wanna remind us today, the problem of evil is not just external, it is an internal problem. And when you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of your sins. The power of wickedness inside of you is broken. He doesn't just forgive you of your sins. He saves you from the power of sin present within your life. And not only that, but he overcomes the supernatural evil, the principalities and powers. The Bible says in Colossians 2.13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all This is really good, by the way. And you can probably give a shout to God for this one. Having forgiven you all your trespasses. And that is, that's good. 
having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Like you couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't do anything about it. God did something about it. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit conspiring together before the world was ever made, and the Son gave himself, and he won the victory on the cross. The principalities and powers rejoicing in what they thought was the defeat of the Son of God. The Bible says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. And, and the, final, the final thing today, thank you for being patient. Jesus will ultimately destroy evil completely. Amen. He will ultimately destroy. And it, it is a provocative title, you know, that we have to today's message. Um, but what about hell? What about the reality of hell? Just, just remember with me as we look at the scriptures, hell is the ultimate and complete destruction of evil. Hell is the ultimate and complete destruction of evil. Um, hell right now, according to Scripture, is empty, but at the second coming of Jesus Christ, the false prophet and the Antichrist will be cast into hell. Then death and Hades will be cast into hell. And then there will be the great white throne of judgment where those who have rejected Christ and the revelation of God will suffer eternal conscious torment. And then at the end, Satan himself will be cast into hell as well. Hell is how and where God once and for all deals with the issue of evil so that we can experience the joy of his presence forever. The Bible says in Revelation 21.3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself, listen, we're looking forward, right? God himself will be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And, yeah. <clears throat> Hang, hang with me as the plane comes in for a landing, all right? We, we, are, we are in the already but not yet. You're like, why is it so hard then? Because we're in the already but not yet. You know, we're in the already in this sense. When Jesus died on the cross, was raised from the dead, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, for those who put their trust and faith in him, the fullness of heaven is poured out into our lives. We experience the kingdom of God in our lives because of what Christ has done. We can taste and see that God is good. We're spirit indwelt. We experience the presence of God. We're led and directed by God. We're sons and daughters. We have his purpose and his plan for our life. And yet we still live in this already but not yet we still live in this place where we know that our citizenship is not here on this earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. And so we, we battle and we fight. Listen, we battle and we fight and we struggle and stuff happens and we wonder why, but I want to remind you of what G.K. Chesterton said. He said, when belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is to turn away from him, but for heaven's name to what? For heaven's name to what? When the devil is tempting you and, say, you know, and saying, you know, if God was a God of love, God was a God of love, and you're like, well, maybe God's not a God of love, what are you going to turn to? What are you going to turn to? Paul, you remember how this goes for the apostle Paul. He was given a vision. It was an amazing vision. As he recounts it in 2 Corinthians 12, he doesn't even use his name. He's like, I know a man who 14 years ago... And he tells this story about this vision that was so powerful and profound, he couldn't even write it down on paper. And then he gets autobiographical, and he says, so that I was not lifted up in pride. Paul says, God had a plan in all of this. He blessed me with a vision, but he knew that within me there, there still is that arrogant old man, that arrogant old nature that's going to take credit for. And so what did God do? He buffeted Paul in the flesh. A messenger of Satan was sent and dealt Paul a, a mighty blow, a thorn in the flesh, and Paul pleaded with God three times. 
I don't know what that pleading looked like. I could imagine, you know, if I was probably like, what, 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 what is this? God, are you kidding me? I've planted churches. I've sacrificed my life. I've been beaten with rods. I've been thrown in prison. I've dealt with people's nonsense. I've been shipwrecked. And really, really, he prays three times, and this is the answer he gets back. This is the answer. This is, God doesn't say, hey, Paul, listen, let me tell you, these are the reasons why, and I hope it's okay with you, and you know, I'll try to do better leading your life next time. God doesn't say that. He's like, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. It is hard. It is hard. It's difficult. And Paul, Paul says, you know what? That's all I needed. I didn't, need to, I didn't need him to dot every I and cross every T. I didn't need him to bow down to the idolatry of my questions. All I needed him was to tell me, to remind me that his grace is sufficient. And Paul says, I will therefore gladly boast in infirmities and sicknesses because when I'm weak, the power of Christ rests upon me. I'm just closing this to say to you today that God is the answer. And every one of these prophets in their struggle, this is where they get to Habakkuk as God, as God walks him through this whole thing. At the very end, he, sit, he raises up his hands and he says, though the fig tree may not blossom, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. You put that in modern terms, all right? I got no money in the bank. My car's not working. Things are super difficult. There seems to be an absence of the engagement of God, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. It's powerful. Job, after wrestling with, with his friends, he gets confronted by God. God hits him. Like 64 questions straight up. Job, were you there? Job, were you there? Job, do you understand? Job, do you, are you omniscient? Do you, can you trace out all my ways? And after Job hears these 64 questions, he says this to God, I've uttered what I did not understand. I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you and you shall answer me. Watch this, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. The presence of God, the presence of God. Listen, don't be so consumed with the existence of evil and wickedness. Choose to be consumed with God's presence and his love. Make, make that your choice. It's not wrong to wrestle with these things as long as you're finding your rest in him.